going to be reading from Romans 13 this morning, verses 1 through 7. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who arrest will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the, of the authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. For he is God's minister for you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience's sake. For because of, uh, because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually for this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. This is the word of the Lord. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. If you were alive during 9-11, you probably remember what you were doing when the World Trade Center towers fell. And you would probably remember the days and weeks immediately following. You could walk down the street and there was a sense of citizenship, of camaraderie, of a common bond. We were kinder to one another. We were more likely to stop and to help one another. Something had happened. Which pulled us together as a people, as a country, as a nation, in a way that with the possible exception of the assassination of John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr., I uh, recall unexcelled in my lifetime. Church attendance rose. That event pulled us together for a time as citizens. We were reminded that we have certain responsibilities and certain opportunities together. Unfortunately, it didn't last very long, at least not in my experience. At uh, most a matter of weeks, actually, I think it was a matter of days. Now, 14 years later, we are deeply divided as a nation. Race relations are at the lowest point they have been in 50 years. Personally, my assessment is that they are worse than 50 years ago during the great era of civil rights. Troubled though it was, we didn't we feel like we were at least the majority moving forward, moving together, moving in an edifying direction. As much as at any time in my life, the civil society that unites us seems also to be what is dividing us. In Romans 12, through which we've just passed in three Sundays together, we had an amazing picture, an amazing summons and call to the Christian community, the Christian life together, the Christian family, the body of Christ, which is to be open and tender-hearted and familial together. Now in Romans 13, the door opens wider. What is our responsibility as a Christian community to the wider civil society, the states and governments which rule them? 
What should the Christian attitude to and involvement in be towards our government, indeed any government? The Bible's answer is both profound and amazingly practical. It moves between what we could see as two extreme poles, probably the reality regularly exists somewhere in between Romans 13 and Revelation 13. Romans 13, as we'll spend a few moments looking at, tells us that government is God-ordained, God-purposed for societies and individuals' great blessing. Revelation 13 tells another story. It tells us what happens when government metastasizes and begins consuming those that it was meant to bless. It is a picture of anarchy. This church has had a special, has a special relationship with East Africa and the Horn of Africa, and it has been regularly, prayerfully on our minds what happens to a civil society when there is no governmental restraint whatsoever, or hardly any. It is befalling the people of Somalia. You've heard Romans 13. Thank you, Ben, for reading that to us. Now, here, Revelation 13, in what admittedly is going to be a savagely edited, I, I edit scripture with uh, fear and trembling and with caution, but to get the sense of this chapter, here is an edited version of Revelation 13. I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, and all the world marveled and followed the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Then the beast opened his mouth in blasphemy against God. Then I saw another beast coming out out of the earth. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand and on their foreheads, so that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name, 666. Government in this vision has left its God-ordained channel and has become an instrument of Satan. So here are the two extremes. It can be either, government cannot be either divinely given and part of God's good purposes for human life, or it can be demonically possessed, cancerous, and trying to devour all of life for its own benefit. It can be either a blessing or a bane. It can be either God-honoring or Satan-serving, Romans 13 or Revelation 13. Those are the options. So a magnifying glass for just a few short minutes on Romans 13, our text for today. In Romans 13, we see God's proper place for governance. The government, the state, has a legitimate, if limited, role. Government's role is to establish order, to restrain evil, and to promote justice. I realized uh, how immediate and savage are the forces of anarchy arrayed against us. The last time I was in Scotland and the hinterlands and looking at these castles which dot the landscape here and there, everywhere you look, they're not like the American imagination this side of the pond might be, at least of English castles of landed gentry and beauty. 
And the Scottish, uh, some of them are beautiful, but all of them rugged and most of them small. They uh, grew up as defensive fortresses so that the agrarian families who had settled and raised family and raised crops, when uh, the scavenging hordes, the nomads and soldiers and brigands came in against which uh, they had little or no defense. It was not their lifestyle. Their only defense was to go up into the castle keep where they had provisions and wait them out. Maybe pour boiling oil down on those who might try to to storm the castle. But that was the defense of an agrarian society. They would stand there on those windswept hills and imagine the fear of those who were gathered here simply praying that they could wait out the enemies. That's life without governance, life without protection, life without justice, life without a force which restrains evil. It is government's good and proper role. Uh, Even before God gave the Ten Commandments to his people, this necessity to restrain evil and promote justice can be seen in the biblical text, Exodus 18. It says, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. And two verses later, we are told why Moses does this in his own Understanding, he writes, the people come to me to seek God's will. Justice, law, governance. It's not a whim. It is not a decision when it's properly anchored of the majority or the ruling elite. It is anchored in transcendent values and absolute truth in God's justice. Government is given to reveal that. The Bible teaches them that the state serves a divinely appointed purpose, a divinely defined task, although it itself is not divine. It is legitimate, but limited. One of my two uh, favorite contemporary ethicists, Christian ethicists, One, I just think I want to say his name, Stanley Hauervas. The other has a fine name as well as a French writer, Jacques Ellul. Jacques Ellul summarizes the responsibility of the church in the world. He writes, The Christian who is involved in the material history of this world, politics, the uh, political order, the Christian who is involved in the world, is involved in it as a representative of another order, another master than the prince of this world, another claim than that of the natural heart of man. Thus he must plunge into social and political problems in order to have an influence in the world, not in the hope of making it a paradise, but simply in order to make it tolerable. End quote. The Christian is to be involved in the state, in governance, in government itself, because it is ordained of God, Romans 13 makes clear, and part of God's good purposes for restraining evil and promoting justice and blessing human life. We are called to be Christian citizens, involved in the government, 
but never worshipping it. On the other hand, the Bible teaches that the state regularly tries to expand its power and move beyond this God-given mandate. Revelation 13, which we've just heard together, portrays the earthly order as becoming a beast, rising up out of the earth and blaspheming God. Governments with rare exceptions, maybe no exceptions, seek to expand their power beyond the mandate to restrain evil and promote order and preserve justice. Most often, they do this by trying to claim a religious status or a religious authority themselves, understandably so. They, if not explicitly, intuitively must understand that religious institutions, religious authority is the only institution in our world that makes a claim which rivals, indeed, surpasses that of the state. That's why totalitarian regimes regularly try to regulate or squash or to eliminate it. At best, remember when the Soviet Union was in its heyday, you could not evangelize outside of the church, you could not teach children, you could not promote social good, you uh, could not worship outside of church. Government whether in ancient Rome or modern America, regularly tries to expand its power beyond godly mandates. Then, Christian citizenship, proper Christian patriotism, seeks to hold a proper, healthy, balanced relationship between church and state. Perhaps I shouldn't say balanced imbalanced but proper. Every generation has an obligation to seek a new healthy relationship. Both church and state have roles to play, their role. Christ's teaching clearly delineates what this is. When his enemies come to trap him, they ask a question to which they think is no answer. Should uh, we pay the dreaded tax to Caesar? You remember Jesus asked for a denarius and asked whose head is on there, what image is on there. And, of course, it's the portrait of Tiberius Caesar, and the inscription says, Son of the Divine Augustus. And then in a masterly, even divine answer, he says, Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. If you owe taxes, pay them. But... Pay to God what you owe God, your very lives, your very self, your very soul. You bear his image. You are his. If you owe taxes, pay them. But worship is reserved solely for God. Another caution of this text and Revelation 13 with it suggests is the church is not to use political power to try to advance the kingdom. So on the other side of the coin... From the state claiming too much power, the church should understand that we are to change lives, transform souls, proclaim the good news, and witness to the values of the kingdom of God. And we should resist the tempting illusion, but that's what it is, that we, the church, can usher in the kingdom through political means. Radical Islam. 
is trying to usher in another kingdom by this kind of unholy alliance. Jesus provided the best example for the church in his wilderness confrontation with Satan. Satan offered him all the kingdoms of the world to do with as he wished. It would be a a crown without a cross. And interestingly, always interesting to me, Jesus never questions the right or the authority of Satan to offer him, the Lord of the universe, these worldly kingdoms. Apparently, Scripture confirms that Satan, for this season, for this eon, is prince of the world. This... uh, The church has throughout history succumbed to this very kind of temptation that Christ explicitly denied. America is not the new Jerusalem or even a city upon a hill, nor are Americans God's chosen people. The kingdom of God is universal and not bound by nation or race. Again, Jacques Ellul says, The Christian is to be involved in the world, not in order to diminish the opposition between this world and the kingdom of God, but simply in order to modify the opposition between the disorder of this world and the order of preservation that God wills for it. And here's the critical part. Not in order to bring in the kingdom of God, but in order that the gospel may be proclaimed that all people may really hear the good news of salvation through the death and resurrection of Christ. So the state, properly functioning, does not coerce the kingdom. It cannot coerce the kingdom. It cannot and it should not even try to establish the kingdom, but it can provide safety and security in which the gospel can be shared and heard and lived. So the implications for us is that we are to be Christian citizens, Christian patriots. Our task as Christians, no matter what government we find ourselves attached to, is to be good citizens. As he regularly is, C.S. Lewis is helpful again here. He recognizes that we are not to confuse love of God and love of state. We are Christians first and citizens second or third or fourth, somewhere down the line. Remember that Christians were first persecuted by the state because we refused to bow the knee to Caesar. We will not call Caesar Lord. He is not Lord. There is only one Lord, Christ who is Lord. But Lewis says patriotism is good training wheels for love. We do not love exclusively those who are near and local, but we should love them first. We learn how to love more broadly and universally by caring and loving the land and the neighbors and the citizens and the fellows who are in our midst. Christian citizenship is training ground for world citizenship. Lewis writes, we all know now that this love, this uh, patriotic love, becomes a demon when it becomes for us a god. Some begin to suspect that it is never anything but a demon.
the genius of our country, I believe, is that it was forged on biblical principles. That is not to say it is a Christian country. It is not, it was not, and never will be. But our country and all countries need our faith. They need the best of biblical truth. Our country needs that compass and vision and love. We are well along the way in a project of reinventing the United States as a post-Christian country. But we should not delude ourselves. Our country, or any country, cannot long endure as a healthy civil community if biblical truth is removed from our culture. While government cannot make our nation Christian, Christianity can make our nation and any nation civil. We can contribute most to our country and to our country best when we live, love God first with all our hearts and souls and strength. I've shared with you before that my favorite movie without even a close second is A Man for All Seasons. In that movie, Sir Thomas More read a review recently and said it was a bit of a hagiography and making more into a bit of a more of a saint than he should have been made into. Nonetheless, the scripted Thomas More, who uh, and the real Thomas More, who refused to bow his knee to his friend Henry VIII and uh, to equivocate on his religious convictions, is finally put to death. And in the play by that name, and in a movie version of it both, as he ascends to the scaffold, his last words were, Tell the king that I was his true subject, but God's first. We are the best citizens of our country when we are God's subjects first. Father, we are thankful for your blueprint for our life and how we are to involve ourselves in society. We do pray for our nation and for our leaders and for our world. May we be faithful to your gospel, your good word, and to your coming kingdom. May we be ambassadors of your kingdom in this world over whom Satan is its prince. We Pray for nations and states that they might indeed restrain evil and promote good and advance justice so that your gospel might be heard and known and shared and shown and loved and lived. May it be so in this country and in your waiting world. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.